is it's the CO2 that guides our respiration, not oxygen. This is how the nervous system is wired. It's not wired to detect oxygen. It's wired to detect CO2 and modulate our breathing accordingly. Just that ribcage diaphragm interface ended up radically shifting people's substrate utilization. They're, they're sort of the metabolic pathways they're using just because they freed up the diaphragm, they were able to breathe more effectively and that shifted the whole system towards an aerobic bias. Nasal breathing because processing the air saturating it with nitric oxide for vasodilation, but also for it's a neurotransmitter. It tells oxygen where it needs to go. Learning to get out of your chest and into your belly when you breathe will be the single biggest or single most immediate intervention that you can leverage for sure. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Water and Wellness, waterandwellness.com. If you remember my conversation with Robert Slovak, we got into understanding reverse osmosis water. We got into hydrogen, molecular hydrogen. We got into Quinton Minerals, and all three of those products are available to you for a limited time only at a 10% discount site-wide if you go over to waterandwellness.com slash muscleintelligence. Spell it all out, waterandwellness.com slash muscle intelligence. I know it's a mouthful, but you got it. And you can get hooked up with 10% off nationwide. If you're in Canada, you can also get a discount. It's a different website. It's Vita Express, V-I-T-A-E-X-P-R-E-S-S dot C-A slash muscle intelligence and continue to benefit from our amazing offers. One of my favorite products on water and wellness is their AquaTrue countertop water filter. It's a true reverse osmosis filter. It's a little one, fits comfortably on your countertop, and it's the best way to get all those tap impurities out of your water. If you're drinking typical tap water, even bottled water, sometimes those can be loaded with impurities, and, and using a reverse osmosis filter is an amazing way to get all those impurities out there. Truly the best way, that the gold standard in purification. Um, my advice is you remineralize your waters after you've used the AquaTrue or reverse osmosis, and that's why Quinton is actually a great way to stack with AquaTrue because you're removing all, literally the, the reverse osmosis strips everything out. So you do tend to lose minerals. And we want to make sure we're getting some of these trace minerals back into our bodies. And so taking a Quinton uh, vial or ampule every morning is a really good way to keep your body mineralized and ultimately energized. And if you're somebody who lacks energy, believe it or not, one of the easiest things you can do for improving your morning energy is simply taking one of these Quinton or any type of trace mineral where you're getting a good amount of sodium and a good amount of trace minerals that your body needs to ultimately thrive. There's so much more to nutrition than just protein, carbs, and fats that just gets missed in the you know the common narrative on the internet. So ladies and gents, if you are somebody who's committed to living your best life, uh, one, you're going to love this podcast too. You should check out waterandwellness.com slash muscle intelligence. Absolutely pick up the AquaTrue, whether it be for yourself, your family, your kids, or even at the office. It's a great way to make sure you're getting the highest quality water. And then don't forget to stack a Quinton on top of that. The amygdala, it turns out, could actually completely halt your breathing. It could create a state of apnea where your breathing has come to a complete stop. And we had no idea. We always thought this was the brainstem. As long as I could think back, it's always been the only areas of the brain that could actually stop breathing are within nuclei of the brainstem. Well, it turns out that was not 
totally correct. It, the, the amygdala has a direct route to the brainstem nuclei. And through that connectivity profile, it could actually inhibit breathing. Hmm. This is brand new information. Most people don't know about this yet. There's been papers that have been published by myself and others showing this link. But it's fascinating to me because now every moment of the day could become part of your fear response. When your breathing stops, the first thing that changes is your CO2 starts going up. And that's what the brain is detecting. And that's what's signaling a very primal form of fear that I call chemoreceptive fear, but it's fear due to high levels of CO2. That could be creating this chronic sort of vicious cycle of anxiety. And what's, what's really fascinating, we'll have to talk about this a little more detail, but I'll just give you a very quick view. What's really fascinating is you could modulate your sensitivity to CO2. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk about that. The, the amygdala itself, you know, you're born with this, as we we're talking about. Every human, except the few that I've studied over the years, has an amygdala. And it's like a sponge, this area of the brain. It's absorbing information every moment of the day from the moment of your first breath. It's modulating its response to that information in real time. So if you're being traumatized, it's collecting all of that sensory data at the moment of the trauma. And now that sensory data is being linked, associated, if you will, with a fear response. And so over time, you could change the amygdala shape. You could change the number of neurons that are within the amygdala, and you could change how it fires to different stimuli. But you're kind of stuck with it. You can't really get rid of your amygdala, nor should you. But what you can change is its sensitivity to certain stimuli, and you can change your response very specifically to one of the most primal triggers of fear, which is carbon dioxide. And to me, that's really neat. For the first time, even if you're genetically endowed with a crappy position in life, <laughs> which, trust me, there's millions of people who, who have this sort of high sensitivity to fear and anxiety. You know, this is a ubiquitous condition. So if you're if you're stuck with that, well, guess what? It turns out there are ways you could modulate this response. So I'd love to come back to that in a minute. What I'd like to touch on before we kind of move from there is the other triggers for for this fear response and anxiety response, right? So if we know that CO2 tolerance is one, accumulation of CO2. I've also heard some other potential causes of, of this fear response. You know, some people have just crippling fear. And so, you know, I, and some people might, I hear is, is a deficiency in certain hormones and certain people, maybe it may be uh, just inflammation. Like, I'm curious if there's other things that come to mind or like, hey, these are typically the things that are associated with maybe recurring bouts of anxiety. I think one of the big things that uh, we touched on a little bit is adrenaline. Mm -hmm. You know, this is flowing through our body all the time. It's, it's constantly being pumped out by the adrenal glands. The brain has a, a direct way to trigger adrenaline release, but it turns out different people are more or less sensitive to those perturbations that adrenaline causes. So when your heart rate starts shooting up, when you have that feeling of palpitation happening in your chest, right? Some people, you know, react to that with joy. 
and they're they're excited and they want to like you know approach that and 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 charge forward right and then there's a lot of people who who feel that and they they cower they want to run away they feel like uh, uh they might be dying you know they start having panic attacks over that feeling right and we just published a really neat fmri study with my my colleague side calls at laurie institute for brain research where we actually injected people with a synthetic form of adrenaline while they're in the fmri scanner while we're while we're looking at their brain activity and we did this in both healthy subjects but also people with clinical conditions like anxiety disorders who have that high sensitivity to that heartbeat sensation and it turns out we were able to find this very specific region in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex so sort of sitting right below the forehead, right near where the eyeballs are, go just a little bit back. And it's this small little region that has direct connections with the amygdala that seems to be the uh, ultimate surveyor of whether or not the adrenaline is going to lead to an anxiety response. Hmm. So everyone's getting this injection, you know, the healthy people, the anxious people. But what's fascinating is at the smallest dose that we could give them, the anxious people were feeling anxious already, whereas the healthy people were barely even feeling it. Right. So, you know, to me, one area outside of carbon dioxide that triggers fear is adrenaline itself and our reactivity to the sensations that adrenaline might cause. And that's another area where I think, once again, through systematic exposure, you could teach the brain not to be so sensitive to this. So give me an idea what that might look like. So like inducing adrenaline through exercise, perhaps, or through slightly stressful exp exposures, experiences, graded up over time? A absolutely. I mean, one of the fascinating things in my uh, neck of the woods in terms of anxiety disorder literature is there's a large literature of people with anxiety who avoid at all costs exercise. I have a, a, a colleague of mine at the University of Texas, Jasper Smits, who's, who studies this and is also studying CO2 now, which I'm really excited about. And what ends up happening in a large proportion of people who are anxious is they won't, they don't want to feel the adrenaline. They don't want to feel the sensations that come with an intense workout and they will avoid it at all costs. And, and that's part of the anxiety condition is you avoid anything that could trigger the anxiety or anything that could trigger those sorts of fear responses that you don't like. Once again, I do think there are a lot of people who are athletes that are anxious and have this sort of high sensitivity to fear, but they have trained themselves to overcome it. I think that's actually proof of this idea that you are able to overcome these very primordial physiological responses. Just with like intentional graded exposure. Yeah, I think I think that's a key part of it. You know, the, the types of exposure I do are, are more systematic in the sense that we could actually inject people with different levels of adrenaline, a synthetic form of adrenaline called isoproteranol. Or with carbon dioxide, I could give you very specific doses. I could give you 5% CO2 or 20% CO2, or I could go all the way up to 35% CO2, and we could sort of grade the exposure so you start small and work your way up. And of course, all of this is done in, you know, with the utmost of safety and ethical concerns. The, these are 
you know, experiments being done in the laboratory. What's neat is I think we're finally getting to the point where we could begin to start taking some of these laboratory-based exposure methods out into the into the wild in the real world. Yeah. Could you explain to the audience what CO2 tolerance ultimately is? Or, or I know you kind of briefly got into it, but I'd love to understand what it is and then obviously the implications and, and how we can start to control it. In order to understand CO2, you have to understand this idea of chemoreception. In our brain and in our brain stem, especially in areas of the medulla, but also in the periphery of our body, in the bloodstream, in the aortic and carotid bodies in our bloodstream, not too far away from our heart, there are these, these small cells called chemoreceptors that are specifically tuned to detecting changes in pH level of the blood and the cerebral spinal fluid. What ends up happening is if they detect the pH becoming more acidic, they start firing. And that's what's triggering this fear response. That's what's triggering our respiration, it turns out. You know, a lot of people think that the way uh, we detect uh, uh, how to breathe and when to breathe is through oxygen. But it turns out our nervous system is remarkably insensitive to detecting oxygen. And in our central nervous system, we really have very crude uh, uh, ability to feel any changes in oxygen. But when it comes to CO2, we are remarkably sensitive to even the smallest fluctuation because what CO2 is doing is it's creating a more acidic concentration in our blood. The, you know, part of the, the breakdown of CO2 is it turns into carbonic acid. And that's going to create this sort of shift in pH towards more acidity, and it's going to start firing these chemoreceptors. So one thing to understand is these chemoreceptors don't just detect CO2, they detect changes in pH. And it turns out one of the biggest things that shifts our pH in our blood is carbon dioxide. So I think that's one important thing to understand. And the second important thing to understand is it's the CO2 that guides our respiration, not oxygen. This is how the nervous system is wired. It's not wired to detect oxygen. It's wired to detect CO2 and modulate our breathing accordingly. And so when these chemoreceptors are firing, the reflex is to start breathing harder, to start clearing the lungs of the CO2, to start hyperventilating even. That's the reflex when these chemoreceptors get triggered. So when someone's feeling the strong desire to breathe, let's say they're, they're doing a high intensity exercise or even someone who's unhealthy walking upstairs, they feel that strong desire to breathe. That's really the nervous system responding to the chemoreceptors. That's right. That is what, what I call a suffocation alarm, which is essentially the chemoreceptors firing like crazy inside the brainstem and propagating that throughout the rest of the brain. And basically saying, if, if you don't, start getting enough air soon, you are going to die. It's, it's, it's a very primordial response, these suffocation alarms. So it's getting the CO2 out and getting more oxygen ultimately. Exactly. And that, that is what it was meant to do. You know, if you're in a cave, you know, back in the, in the times and all of a sudden you're not getting enough fresh air in that cave and the CO2 levels are rising inside the cave, it's trying to say, get the hell out of this cave right now and get some fresh air, right? And, and so, you know, these, these receptors were even found in Drosophila fruit flies. Hmm. You know, fascinating experiments at Caltech 
have basically shown that when a fruit fly detects a high concentration of CO2 in the air that it's flying in, it will automatically fire the chemoreceptors and it will fly away from that area of airspace. Mm. And fruit flies, it turn out, release CO2 quite a bit when they're stressed out. Mm. So it's like one of the most ancient signals of both stress and sort of avoidance of whatever's causing that stress. That's very and cool. And once again, it started with the chemoreceptors. Very cool. Do you have any protocols or suggest, suggest any protocols that are most effective for having people improve their CO2 tolerance? So I think there's a couple different things kind of all happening at once now. You have, you know, people like Brian McKenzie, who, you know, has been training athletes on CO2 tolerance now for decades. He was way ahead of the game. You know, he's developing stuff. You know, you, you also have, you know, people uh, like Wim Hof, who have developed, I think, really one of the most fascinating modulations of CO2 that I've come across. Because essentially what Wim Hof is doing is he's taking you from the low end of CO2 all the way up to the high end of CO2 in a very short amount of time, and then repeating it three times or more. And, and this is a fascinating way to modulate your chemoreceptors, I think, in a very safe manner. You know, on YouTube, for example, he now has his, his basic breathing video, which I think is only about 10 or 11 minutes long that he released right before the pandemic. And it has over 50 million views right wow. now. So, you know, I think it's taking the world by storm because it works very effectively. And it works because it's modulating CO2 from one side all the way to the other side. So for those who don't know what Wim Hof is, essentially, he's having you take, you know, 30 uh, sort of rapid breaths. It's not full on hyperventilation. It's It's just at a faster pace. And you take those 30 breaths very deeply. You try to get a lot of oxygen in, and then you clear out your lungs a little bit. But over time, you're going to be blowing off the CO2 during this breathing period. You're going to go. And every time you're exhaling, more CO2 is coming out. But because you're doing it at a faster pace, your CO2 is getting lower and lower and lower and lower. Okay. And then after the 30 breaths, he has you just hold your breath on the video up to 90 seconds. There's a lot of people who've been doing this, including myself, who could get up to triple that even. I would say uh, for sure double that. So hitting three minutes on a Wim Hof breath hold is not hard. And there's some tricks that he creates in your physiology that allow you to hold your breath for that long. But essentially what is happening is you're holding your breath more and more, more and more CO2 is being created in your body and not being cleared because you're not breathing. And so your CO2 levels are going up and up and up and up and up. And then at the end of the breath hold, he has you take a recovery breath and then do it all over again three times. And so you're going from one end of the CO2 scale all the way to the other end. What happens is the first few times you do this, you're going to feel a lot of intense sensations when you play with the chemoreceptor system like this. But after you do it for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, after it becomes part of a daily practice, 
suddenly you've overridden that response. And in fact, you could, the way I explain it to my kids is you could remain calm in the face of the storm. That, that's what's happening with Wim Hof. The idea of Wim Hof is not to push yourself. I think people get that wrong. It's like, oh, everyone has to hold their breath for as long as they could. No, in fact, if you really understand his instruction, his, his true instruction set, it's not to push yourself. As soon as you're starting to fidget during the breath hold, feeling like I got to get some more air, just breathe. Just get another gobel there. Don't push yourself. The idea is to just get used to these sensations and know that you could remain completely calm and not have to move a muscle because it's okay. You know, that's the neat part is when you learn that the chemoreceptive primal alarm is not necessarily signaling imminent death, suddenly you now are in control of your own response. You're in control of your own ability to override fear. So taking a performance lens to what you just said, can you talk to us about why in that moment people are seeing acute transient increases in performance? Like what's happening at a physiological level? Which moment? So when people are doing these breath holds, so example being a guy can do 10, 20 pushups, he does a breath hold, so he's doing 40 or 50. I see this all the time, right? So Right. There's a couple of different mechanisms at play, I'm sure. Anything that comes to mind that, that stands out as to why that's why that's happening? It, there are a couple of different mechanisms. One of the big ways is adrenaline. They, they've actually done some studies now with the Wim Hof method. You're supposed to breathe through your abdomen. So in general, in life, you should start breathing through your abdomen. I think we're 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 very poor abdominal breathers to begin with. But in Wim Hof, that's the key part. All 30 of those fast, rapid breaths are through the abdomen, really pushing your, your stomach out on the inhale. You should see it rise. And every time you do that, you are triggering a release of adrenaline. <laughs> That's like one of the quickest ways to arouse your sympathetic nervous system is through abdominal breathing, especially deep abdominal breathing. And then on top of that, when you start the breath hold and your CO2 starts going up, that is triggering a further release of adrenaline, right? And so I think what's happening on these people who are actually doing certain types of performance activities, say push-ups, while they're holding their breath, is they are feeling this huge surge of adrenaline that's sort of muting out all those signs that normally would say, stop it, you're going too far, you're pushing too hard. It allows you to do superhuman things. Now, I want to just stop for a second and give everybody a disclaimer, which is, I don't think you should do the Wim Hof method unless you have an oxygen ring on, because your oxygen levels will start dropping and you won't be aware of it. As we've discussed, we, we have very crude sensitivity to oxygen. And if you're wearing a, a pulse oximeter, oftentimes you could wear these as rings now, but I've seen them on watches too. Eventually, these will become very ubiquitous. In real time, you could see what your oxygen levels are at. And if, say, you're holding your breath and your oxygen levels start getting into the 80% level or 70% level, this is your blood oxygen saturation. You need to start breathing. You know, I've seen people pass out on the Wim Hof. I've seen people pass out trying to do push-ups while they're holding their breath. And that's dangerous. I don't, I don't think anyone should do that. But if you're wearing a pulse oximeter, you could see when your O2 levels start dropping and right around 80% to 70% range, you need to start breathing again. I think that's that's a really important part of doing this in a safe way. And so everyone that I do this method with, I always make sure they're wearing a, a real-time pulse oximeter and it actually starts buzzing 
once their O2 levels hit a certain value and you don't have to look at the ring, that's when you know it's time to, to start breathing again. The foundation of everything I teach probably for the last four years is three things. Breathe, walk, meditate. Stop. Stop. <laughs> Too easy. Oh. Everyone listening to my podcast has probably heard me say it a hundred thousand times. Like, if you're not doing these three things every day intentionally, you're not ultimately, well, I want to say, I hate the word optimized, but like, you're not ultimately optimizing everything, right? Because if breathing and walking are dysfunctional, everything you do on top of that is dysfunctional. If you can't meditate, you know, your mind is going to be chaotic and probably not ultimately organized in a way that's supporting the best version of yourself. Those are my three pillars of human optimization that, that exists at the foundation of it. You know, what's awesome about those three things too, is they can also be done at the same time. Same time, totally. That's <laughs> what's also a miracle on them, right? Like, again, you don't have to the, meditate for an hour and do have a breathing practice for an hour and walk for an hour. You know, you can set aside 20, you know, three 20 minute blocks in your day to walk and you can practice on practice your breathing and your meditation while walking. It's like, a, it's a miracle. Let me give everyone who's listening because they're on your tip around this stuff. This is one of my favorite breathing practices that came out of the work, some of the work we were doing with the coaches of the French freedivers. So freediving, CO2 tolerance, nerds. I If I don't hold my breath, I die, that kind of thing. And you can do this while you're walking. You're going to take a 10 second inhale through your nose. And already I guarantee you're going to fail because a 10 second inhale is a really long inhale and you don't have the control for that but it's going to force you to exhale all the way and then have to. So now we've got range of motion, your diaphragm covered, constrained, and you're going to have to really fill maximally to hit 10 seconds. Then all I need you to do is hold your breath for as long as you can. You can count steps if you want. You can say, I'm going to make it to that tree. Otherwise I'm going to die, right? You can play all these games. And then all of a sudden when you die and a little pee comes out and you feel a little woozy while you're walking in your neighborhood with your dog, go ahead and recover nose only and try to get back to baseline because you're going to do it again at the next minute. So suddenly I will turn that little walk of the dog down the neighborhood into a death frightening, horrible CO2 tolerance drill. And you're going to have to really focus on your breath. But what you'll see is, wow, I can get a lot of work done. And then when I went to train later on that afternoon, my brain was already prepped for higher CO2 tolerance. I'd already done range of motion in my diaphragm. My VO2 max was better. All of those things sort of grease the skids for a better workout later on. And that's for me what it's all about. So I'm holding on the inhale? Uh, hold on the inhale. Yeah. Uh, you know, Wim Hof got us holding on the exhale, but I don't want you to hold on the inhale. Yeah. So man, this, this is really funny. Every one of my coaching clients is being trained to do 30 second inhales and 30 second exhales. Oh, that's so mean. Right. Well, so man, I'll even go beyond that sometimes, but it, the, with the exclusive objective of gaining that diaphragmatic control, the expansion of, of the intercostals, yes. giving them the ability to to regain mobility through the upper back, just like you're speaking about. And the the changes I've seen in spinal mobility and shoulder mobility is uh, there's there's nothing that comes close. I'm not sure if, you, if your experience as a physical therapist or a physiotherapist is similar, but like, man, I've never seen people alleviate shoulder pain and back pain and neck pain as quickly when they just learn to create expansive breathing practices. Everyone is on the internet right now is, you know, Dave Wack is out there hammering the drums and we're talking about, you know, Gre Grekovetsky's book, The Spinal Engine is back and people are thrown in each other's faces and, you know, the spine is the first engine. It's, you know, we've always described that, of course, if we work in functional training, functional movement is defined as a wave of contraction from trunk to periphery. 
from core to sleeve, from axillary skeleton to peripheral skeleton. Mm -hmm. So what's the first organization or first movement of the spine? It's not side flexion. It's not, it's not rounding. It's not rotating. It's breathing and expanding. Mm -hmm. And if you look at, it's actually Philip Beach who describes the sort of intention of the trunk is maintaining, yes, it's moving, but it's maintaining the integrity of the spine. And so everything is a contractile field around trying to maintain the integrity of the spine and comma, stabilize, rotate, generate force, et cetera, et cetera. But the first motion there is the breath. And if you're going to untangle all of these things from headaches to jaw pain, to shoulder pain, to lumbar pain or hip pain, you've got to be looking at how people are moving their their backs and spines, that's breathing. And beautiful. Now I'm going to look up all those, re those references because this is something I just landed on on my own. I, I love trying it. Trying to figure out my that's own. That's because it's the truth. Yeah. But yeah, it's really cool to hear that you're doing that because, you know, one of the things that we we think is different about the breathing section of our book is exactly what you're talking about, right? It's, it's about this, you know, connection between the neck and the back and the spine and, you know, this sort of expansive physiologic part of breathing, you know, not just not just the meditative part and, you know, all the other things that Wim Hof and all the other major experts are, yeah, it's the biomechanics. Like all, all these other experts are talking about, you know, really cool and important things with respect to breathing. And what we felt like we could add, add to this conversation of breathing was the biomechanics part. I went on, I wrote a, um, a breathing course two, two or three years ago and I went on this like six month, just like scouring everything I could on the internet to find people talking about the biomechanic, biomechanical influence of breath i just like tried to find everything i could because i was so obsessed with it i was like there's got to be someone out there teaching it and i found a few people out there with like courses and stuff but it, it wasn't really a predominant focus for anybody i was like how can this not be you know like some of the best biomechanists i, I had ever spoken to just didn't even consider it when it came to like optimization of movement i was like i, I just don't i don't get it so i'm glad that you guys are, are making it popular Shout out to Leo Leon Chaitao, who passed recently in the last year yeah. and wrote a really important book looking at some of the research around the fact that like when the diaphragm wasn't functioning well, we saw 30% decrease of force to the legs, right? The huge shutdowns that the, the diaphragm accounted for, the majority of blood flow during aerobic exercise. That makes sense. So an efficient, functional, non-stiff diaphragm that wasn't tacked down made it more effective. We saw that, and it's at, I'll point out the work of Cal Dietz and his triphasic, some of the work he was doing around just mobilizing the, the front of the ribs for people, just that rib cage diaphragm interface, ended up radically shifting people's substrate utilization. They're, they're sort of the metabolic pathways they're using, just because they freed up the diaphragm, they were able to breathe more effectively, and that shifted the whole system towards an aerobic bias. It's really remarkable. So Cal's implementing some, I forget the name of his system. It's, the triphasic is, is a training modality, his, his like manual modality that Mike uh, Nelson also teaches. Reflexive refor performance reset. RPR. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Are you talking okay. about Dr. Mike Nelson? Yeah, yeah. Shout and, out. Shout out. Shout I love him. He's amazing. And Cal, yeah, both teaching the, the RPR. That's correct. And that was, so actually Mike treated me on RPR. I didn't realize that they had data on how it impl uh, implicated in metabolic output. That's interesting. I'll look at that. And- more importantly, and this is what's so great about what we're seeing about everyone, when you're hearing experts on the internet, everyone, PSA, I want you to ask yourself, who are they working with? Where are their bona fides? Are they aggregators of information? There's nothing wrong with that. Certainly nothing wrong with that. I love aggregators, love people who are experts and 
in fields and who are sort of helping me feed me the the tidbits and the research. But I also want to know who you're working with, testing and seeing. And that really matters. And that has been lost in this big, you know, fancy internet world where everyone's an expert. What you can see is one of the reasons that RPR and the work of Dietz at all, at all is so important is they're actually working with national level hockey players and yeah. they're working with a whole university and they're testing all of their thinking and, and objectively measuring inputs and outputs. And what you see suddenly is a conversation for him and that group, that coaching group is what is the minimum effective dose to have the most impact on my athletes so I can get them out of the gym faster and into their sport faster. Yeah. And how can a person do this to themselves? So RPR is super cool and someone does it to you, but you'll be shocked at how they teach athletes to do it to themselves. Hmm. And that is where the magic is, is that a person taking care of themselves in their household is the goal. Brilliant. Yeah. I always say like you know, 95% of people on the internet are just regurgitating information as opposed to actually taking some information, taking some theories, applying it, pushing it to the limit seeing where it breaks, seeing where it holds up, and then coming back with some valuable insight about, okay, this is what happened at this uh, in this uh, arena, and this is how I can maybe extrapolate some of the value of what I learned and apply it over here. Totally, yeah, man. I totally agree with you. There, there's, and, and it's such a gift to be able to work with, you know, really any any audience, but specifically high-performance athletes, because, you know, as you know, if you're not pushing something all the way, you know, pedal all the way down, really kind of hard to tell where this thing holds up and where it breaks. It's very true, and it's one of the reasons in our thinking why here we have the components of durability. We think that you're going to go out and, and do what you need to do. But the reason we know what we know, again, is because we work in these high-performance environments. That's, that's where the test is, where we're like, wow, this is a really cool idea, doesn't scale, not reproducible, can't be consistent with it. You know, like, so... You know, are we going to send LED light beds out with our SEAL team? So like, we're like, mm, it's probably not going to work great, but maybe that's a technique or a tool that works better at home in when they are recovering. Okay. So, so it allows us to start to sift through some of these pieces. The thing you just hinted at actually is really one of our central ideas is that unless you can do this thing at high speed and high load, it's probably not as effective. And so what we see suddenly is, look, everyone is squatting on slant boards. Super cool. We've been squatting on Olympic lifting shoes for a long time. We've been sliding plates underneath people's heels for a long time. But what is the world record slant board squat? Do you know? It doesn't I, exist. I'll tell you what, if it does exist, I probably hold it. <laughs> like, I can't, I, it's difficult to disprove. So I'm sure that you're the world record holder for slant board squats. But Blame suddenly what you, you see <laughs> suddenly is that, hey, this, Send us the video. this tool doesn't continue to serve me throughout the course of my life. And so for us, and we might say, hey, that's a less effective technique or a less effective tool. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean it's not an, a useful tool, but as we kind of progress, what we'll start to see is that, as Franz Bosch says, there's more variation in waltzing than there is in sprinting. And that's because at waltzing, at low load, low speed, it doesn't matter. Your body can do whatever it wants, mm -hmm. but a high load, high speed, boy, it really does start to matter. Sleep starts to matter, nutrition starts to matter, movement, tissue quality, all starts to matter. I think Kelly made a really good point that I wanted to elaborate to. It seems like we really have sort of disempowered people at, at large to be responsible for their own bodies. You know, I can't tell you how many people, you know, we have who, you know, tweak a neck and before they, you know, get into our office, 
have gotten two MRIs, a CAT scan, and seen six physicians. Um, when often, you know, it, when often the solve is teaching them how to breathe, maybe doing some T-spine mobilization and practicing putting their arms over their head. And so I think we've really sort of- Wow, that was a super like organized, systematic way. Amazing. Thank you. We, I think we've trained people to think like any ache and pain, I've got to run directly to the physician. Um, you know, we haven't gotten the message out that there's so much people can do on their on the gym floor or the living room floor to make their bodies feel better. And, you know, and, you know, even I would even go so far as to say, like, one of the things that bugs us the most, you know, we've obviously been standing desks, desk advocates for a long time and not because we're anti sitting and not because we're pro standing. But what we like about the standing desk is it is a gateway to more movement. People who are standing tend to move and fidget and change position more often. And it's easier to, you know, work on your mobility at a standing desk. So that that's why we're pro standing desk. But I can't tell you how many people have said to us, oh, man. I'd love to get a standing desk at work, but, you know, my employer just won't pay for it. And that's like a classic, you know, we've handed off our health and wellness to others. And I mean, to me, the worst person you can hand off your health and wellness to is your employer. They're not responsible for your health and wellness, right? Like that's something that you're responsible for. And, you know, a standing desk doesn't need to be a $7,000 plug-in hybrid amazing you know, piece of equipment. It can be like six copies of Becoming a Supple Leopard with your laptop on top. Right. And so it's it's just interesting to see in, in these different parts of our lives how how we've almost encouraged people and you know taken away their power to manage their own health and do it in the home, which we think is the most effective place. And that's one of the things we're really trying to do with this book is say, hey, you own these things. These things are your responsibility and only you will reap the benefits of having a body that moves well and feels good. And the benefits will be massive if you if you, you know, keep an eye on those things. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Paleo Valley. Just before I jump into the podcast, uh, I actually had a little snack. I went into some grass-fed meat sticks, uh, which are just phenomenal. They have many different flavors. They have um, uh, one of my favorite ones is summer sausage. They have a spicy and non-spicy and just all grass-fed, high-quality, convenient snacks. One of the challenges that many of us have as busy entrepreneurs, executives, anyone in this modern life, it's really just uh, you know finding snacks that can hold us over when it's not maybe mealtime or maybe we're in a rush to get some protein and we're not sure how we're going to end our daily protein intake. One of my favorite ways to do so, and with my kids as well, is just using a couple of grass-fed meat sticks to get uh, all of our daily protein intakes from a high-quality source you can trust, 100% grass-fed and grass-finished, and um, just love the flavors as well. You can, and then so many other great products as well that I haven't mentioned. They've got a bone broth protein, which is phenomenal. They've got protein bars, which I love and my kids love. And these guys are huge on supporting um, environmental restoration and animal welfare as well, which are obviously big hot topics right now in our world. Um, so ladies and gents, head over to paleovalley.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 15% off your first order. And again, 15 percent off our food is really significant because the margins on food products is very, very small, right? Some companies have large margins they work on, some of them have small, and we know that anything that's a food product, as you can imagine, in the grocery store, the margins are incredibly small. And so we really appreciate Paleo Valley uh, supporting this podcast and supporting you in your ability to ultimately um, get the best quality products, put the best quality products into your body. Everyone, we had Dr. Peter Litchfield on the podcast recently. I don't know if you're familiar with him. And most people would call him the godfather of, of breathwork. He's the guy who's kind of doing all the research 
And he literally said exactly the same thing. He said, people who are hyperventilating are hurting themselves. They're causing problems. And all you need to do is breathe less. He said, all these things that people are doing, all these fancy new modalities, they're causing problems. He's like, just breathe less. And this is the guy who he's in his 80s, he's been doing this for 40 years. He said, like, you know, of all the research I see, the only tip I have for everyone listening out there, breathe less. Exactly. So breathe less, not breathe more. Yeah. <laughs> you will reduce, just, just to summarize this one more time, because it's so counterintuitive and so people have been led to believe, but isn't breathing more better, you know, taking a breather? Uh, just take a no breather for a moment, okay? So again, you cannot use more oxygen and absorb more oxygen by breathing more, by inhaling more. But when you exhale too much, you prevent optimum oxygenation at a cellular level. That's physiology. That's the Bohr effect. That's just plain and simple physiology. So breathe less and make your reflexive breathing to be that way. Not just those 10 minutes when you will pay attention to breathe less. And then the moment you stop paying attention, you're busy and you breathe through the mouth and you breathe shallow and you breathe fast. If your breath work, whatever it is that you're doing, does not teach you, does not modify your reflexing breathing pattern, it's not effective, period. There's no way to put it in any, any different way. It was a beautiful summary of really everything that people need to understand from perspective of, of breathing optimization. And I'd love for, for you to maybe give us some examples. It sounds like it has to be a very individualized process of graded exposure to slightly more comfortable amounts of breath holds over time. Is that the simple approach? Is, is just commit to doing it consistently and just introduce some slight breath holds till eventually it just, it just kind of catches and you can override your physiology? Yes, I think that's a great way. Um, it's actually the way I, I teach it in the beginning. And I call it the, the timeless approach. Timeless means you do not need to time anything. You just need to feel. Um, I do suspect, you know, a lot of people uh, catch themselves holding their breath from time to time. And they're like, oh, that's bad. It's not great. In fact, it's good and bad. So let, let me explain to you why. Efficient breathing should be smooth. It should be consistent, continuous, near silent, slow, regular. So why would you find yourself holding your breath sometimes? I think that it's, a, it's an attempt of the nervous system to restore higher levels of CO2, mm -hmm. the cellular level. And higher levels of CO2, which simply means normal levels of CO2. If you're chronically over-breathing and you may not realize that you are, and most people do and they don't know. So you are chronically deficient in CO2. So your pH is off and your oxygenation is suboptimal. So when you're going to hold your breath, you, that's not something that you do consciously, but it, I, I suspect the nervous system, the respiratory center are doing that in order to try to restore optimum oxygenation. Because when you hold your breath, even for a few seconds, you're going to not exhale that CO2. So it's going, you're going to keep it inside. Um, now, why would you do deliberate breath holds of that kind for the exact same reason? I think people need to just kind of, we need to reiterate that many people are eating alkaline foods in the attempt of, of, you know, having this thought of, oh, I want to alkalize my body when in reality, <laughs> food doesn't alkalize your body through your stomach. No, the only single way to, to change your alkalinity or acid base or your pH is through the breath and through manipulation of, of retention of CO2. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so hey, 
all night you breathe too fast or you breathe through the mouth, bad deal. Yeah. Uh, if all day you do the same, bad deal. So they say we take 23,000 breaths a day. That's one of the things that you hear all the time because people like to parrot information without actually doing any investigation. Let, let, let me uh, clarify this. I don't take 23,000 breaths a day. I take much less than that. Some people take more than that. So that's an average. It means that depending on your respiratory rate, you'll take less than 20,000, more like 15,000. And some people will take more than 30,000 breaths a day. When we say a day, that includes the night. So that's thousands of breath cycles a day of difference between one individual to the next. A person that on average would breathe 10 times a minute, we're talking about 10 breath cycles, that's 10 inhales, 10 exhales. And a person who would breathe 20 breath cycles a day, okay? That's twice as much, 360, um, you know, five days um, uh, in a year, 10 years of that, two decades of that, 50 years of that. You don't think it makes a difference? We're talking about hundreds of millions of superfluous breaths taken by the other breather who never knew he or she was an other breather. Millions of, like hundreds of millions of extra breaths that are not inconsequential. They have an impact on your well-being, on your energy mm -hmm. levels, on your emotional states, on your health, since it's directly impacting your cellular respiration. It's impacting your metabolism. It's impacting the energy that you are because we all basically, life is the regulation of energy at every level. And breath is the one thing that you do all the time. You don't move all the time. You don't eat and digest all the time. But certainly your metabolism never stops. And your breathing never stops. And even when you stop your ventilation for a moment, which is breath holding, cellular respiration never stops because ne metabolism never stops. So anything is going to impact your breathing long term. We're talking about years and, 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 and decades. I mean, it's undeniable. Yeah. And by the way, in, in the, in the living world, in the, in the world of mammals, there is a strong correlation in, it's not possible to say causation, but there's a very strong correlation between respiratory rate and longevity. Gosh, you read my mind with that. And so I was literally about to say that. I was like, so many people are going down this path of like, they want to find molecules and they want to find supplements and all these things to take, yet nobody's going, hey, the number one thing probably you can do for your breath is, or sorry, for your longevity is, is optimize your respiration rate. And so my team's created my team's created 20 longevity metrics, 20 things that are most highly correlated with longevity that we can ultimately control the outcomes of, objective outcomes. And I think at the top of the list is like, Breathe, breathe six times a minute, right? Five to six times a minute, find your resonant breathing rate. And that's like, even that, I mean, I'm sure I'm going to guess you probably read that at, at rest or less. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, six minutes. Uh, you're asking if six minutes is... is no, no. Is, six breaths per minute is is um, is what we, what we advocate as yes. being an average. Yes. So um, that or less, by the way, depends on the level of training, but in healthy individuals, because that's the thing. It's like people love to be like, oh, it's all, you know, uh, there's no um, 
it's something natural to people breathing and so find what works for you and like okay well does a person who breathes like that all the time did they find what they worked for them no they're harming themselves out of their ignorance there's no way to don't beat around the bush and don't be like oh yeah you know we're all unique and if, no we're not we're all unique but we also have the same body the same physiology the same lungs and hearts and nervous system it's all regulated by the exact same principles you can't tell that you cannot possibly say that somebody who's completely morbidly overweight is healthy in the same way you cannot say that somebody who breathes like 20 to 30 breath cycles a minute is healthy or breathe healthily because that's their unique way of breathing and we're all different cut the crap period and that's a spiritual statement by the way because you're harming people by spreading this kind of like vague bullshit it's bullshit so breathing slow that's how you are healthy that's not obviously not the only important factor that is going to make you healthy uh, sun exposure uh, grounding uh, rest sleep quality sleep quality and then relationship with others relationship with yourself uh, the way you think oh, everything what you eat obviously and what you don't eat everything plays a part it's all part of the way that you are efficient and healthy at regulating the energy that energy system that you are we're all a energy system made of systems within the system and everything is interconnected so but breathing is that one thing because it's about oxygen you can talk about mind of a matter all you want and the um, unlimitedness of consciousness. But do this, stop breathing, and you lose consciousness. You lose your mind. Literally, it means you... There's no more oxygen to fuel your brain. Shuts off. Where's the consciousness? Where did it go? Where's your spirituality? Well, clearly, <laughs> we're embedded and embodied in that interface, which is the body. And without it, that consciousness cannot exist anymore, at least not on this plane, not in this reality. And that's oxygen. And oxygen, that's breathing. Only breathing is going to give us that oxygen. Breathing oxygen is a no-brainer. That's not what's the issue. Absorbing oxygen, that's what you want. And in that absorption of oxygen, respiratory rate is number one. Nasal breathing because processing the air, saturating it with nitric oxide for vasodilation, but also for it's a neurotransmitter. It tells oxygen where it needs to go. And it's very simple in the end. It's not like, well, there's different ways. No, there's not different ways. Mm, there's only one way. Um, I can breathe less than six um, if I'm really completely, 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 completely relaxed, yet aware and 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 and, uh, and awake i'll breathe less but anywhere below 10 when you're like for instance right here at rest sitting your respiratory rate should be less than 10 breaths for sure and it's easy to measure take a stopwatch you observe your breathing without judging and without trying to alter it and you calculate if it's an effort for you to breathe less than 10 breath cycles per minute again one breath cycle is one inhale one exhale do that simple test if you have to force yourself to breathe less to get to less than 10 and you're just at rest okay you know that it needs to be addressed how much time do you suggest people spend doing this every day 24 7 as far as practicing 
Sorry, because we're not always conscious. How much how much conscious practice are we doing? Practicing. So it's very easy to do that a lot. It's more like um, I would tell people, look, a simple way to do it. You may have a dedicated session. Give yourself five minutes every day, maybe every morning, every evening. It's a possibility. If you have that time, do it. Otherwise, there's so many times during the day where you're not actually working or even you're working, but you could do that. Just pay attention to your breath. So that just takes a second. All you have to do is to remember. And once you remember, you ask yourself those three questions because those are three pillars of efficient, healthy breathing. Am I breathing through my nose? I don't know if you've noticed, but most of the time, not all the time, most of the time, as I speak, I'm breathing through my nose. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't know how many breathwork teachers or experts are breathing all the way through their mouth when they teach. Okay, so am I breathing through through my mouth, through my nose? Am I breathing through my diaphragm or am I breathing more like this, shallow, through upper respiratory muscles, intercostals, apex, in the neck, there's so many uh, upper respiratory muscles that can be involved in shallow breathing. Yeah, that's why everyone has sore necks. This yes. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. On top yeah. of having their head like this because they're always looking at their phone or just it's, it's a posture. Everything is reflexive. We have to understand. As much as we want everything to be natural and everything in us is in fact natural, the question of naturalness is not the right question. The question of efficiency is the right question. You breathe. Everyone does. That's natural. How well do you breathe? How efficiently do you breathe? That's the question. You move. Everybody moves. How well do you move is the question, not the naturalness of your movement, but the efficiency of your movement. You think. Everybody has a brain. Everybody has a mind. Everybody thinks. It's natural. That's not the question. The question is how constructive, positive, effective that thinking is. Do you know how to operate your own thinking, your own thoughts? Or is it all over the place and working against you? So the three pillars, nasal, diaphragmatic, and slow. It's not an order of uh, importance. They're all three are important. It doesn't matter which one you think about first. But first, think about your breathing. Pay attention. Oh, I'm breathing. Yeah, fortunately, you don't have to think about it to be breathing all the time. So the moment you pay attention is when you shift from the mindless to the mindful. And every mindful moment is a moment of paying attention. It's a moment of self-examination. All growth is in that self-examination. No growth can happen without that self-examination. It does not mean that you're a control freak of controlling yourself. It just means that you know that there's always room for growth, room for improvement, and that that attention, if well used, well placed, well directed, will serve you, serve your quality of life, serve the quality and the enjoyment of the experience that you are. Breathing is one of those things, very simple and yet so powerful. So just remind yourself as often as possible. You're opening a door, you're closing a door, you're sitting, you're standing, you're driving a car. At any moment, you can remember, oh, I'm breathing now. Okay, obviously, and thanks, <laughs> thankfully, let's examine that. How am I breathing? Oh, I cut myself breathing through the mouth. Actually, I went like this. <sighs> and that's what triggered me to remember. So you set your mind. You, everything, what we forget in mindset, a mindset, is that we set the mind. How do we set it? How do we choose to intentionally set it? You know, uh, taping before um, sleeping, very effective. But there's something more effective than that, is to set your mind before you sleep. 
And then even to tell yourself that when you will be sleeping, if you catch yourself breathing through the mouth or breathing too fast, breathing too heavy, you will adjust that. As you are sleeping, which is supposed to be unconscious, you're still conscious when you breathe. Anyone knows that how many times it happens that you set an alarm to, let's say, 6.30 and you wake up exactly 30 seconds before the beep? 6.29. Exactly. Excuse me, you are asleep, right? Deep asleep. Actually, you wish you could sleep longer than that. And yet, you wake up like that. You don't even look. You don't even, you can't possibly know what time is it. So what part of your psyche is aware exactly of where you're at time-wise? And not only knows that, keep tracks of that, but then makes a conscious decision or probably unconscious decision to wake you up back into consciousness. So who operates that? What operates that? That's your brain, brother or sister. And you can set your brain to a lot of things, including to readjust any behavior that you know you have reflexively, automatic, that you've never questioned. And now you question them and now you pay attention. And now little by little, you start to modify and improve. The way you look and feel right now is a perfect reflection of your of your genetics and your lifestyle and history up to this point. Perfect reflection, right? If you're like, oh, you know, I don't feel well or I don't look well. Well, your body is perfectly adapted to what you've subjected to in the past. And therefore, if you want to change the way you look, the way you feel and the way you perform in the future, you have to change the way you're, you're engaging with your body now, right? And it comes in owning those 16 hours. And then looking at 15-minute increments and going, okay, what are the 15-minute increments telling me about what my future is going to be like, right? So if you show me your 16 hours, I can tell you what your body's going to look like. I can tell you what your future is going to look like, right? Some of you have different, uh, maybe a little bit more margin for error than others genetically. But in general, you guys can, you know exactly what you need to know about where your body's going to look, feel, and perform based on what you do in the 16 hours you're awake, right? Ultimately, and the eight hours that you're sleeping, Okay. So if we want to learn to um, manage the autonomic nervous system, there's a really, really good visual reference that I that I use that really helps me to depict how to approach this. So men or women, the way I think about this is we all need to access the warrior and the monk. But what that means is a warrior is someone who's always ready to run, fight, react, be assertive and whatever needs to whatever comes in his his or her direction he's ready to respond he she he or she ready to respond right and the monk can be at complete peace in the eye of a storm in the most insane chaos the monk is in peace or at peace yes so the ideal circumstance for a human in my humble opinion, is to be able to tap in to the, the warrior and tap into the monk when you need it and be able to undulate anywhere in the middle whenever you need it. You don't always need to be the warrior, nor do you always need to be the monk. But if I need it, it's there. It's like a tool, right? It's like a tool that I can tap into. And I'll tell you what, guys and girls, that's a superpower. The ability to go to levels of intensity and effort that people simply don't understand is a superpower. The ability to disconnect and be completely at peace, be completely calm to levels that people simply don't understand is also a superpower. So where do our typical uh, 
average day-to-day people live and exist in the middle, right? It's these little small undulations. Rather than seeing like the ability to access peak states of arousal and peak states of calm, we kind of live in this really, it's like, it's literally like the expression of, of, you know, the thermostat on your, uh, in your house. Like, oh, it's like 72 degrees in here. It's a little too warm. It goes 71. And it's literally just a really tight regulation. It barely goes, it never goes certainly high and it certainly never goes low. We want to be able to control those states of arousal, right? Intentionally, not allowing the environment around us to influence those states of arousal. How many of you guys, and this is, this is actually what started my journey. How many of you feel like the environment around you influences your state of arousal or your state of focus or your ability to be present? Anyone? You say no, you're lying. <laughs> your environment is your biggest trigger. But learning to become mindful of it, as one of our guests said, and learning to control it is absolutely within your power. And if you do it, I guarantee you'll be more successful because of it, because now I'm driving the bus. I don't want something outside me to drive the bus. I want to be driving the bus, right? I want to be the one who's like, no, no, I'm going this direction. I know exactly. I want to be conscious of my decisions. I want to make sure that I have all the information to make a decision and then act accordingly. But not all of us are able to do that because we don't have the ability to control our ability to be present and ultimately control these two branches of the autonomic nervous system. So what are the interventions then? So if I want to get super aroused, I want to get myself up, and I don't mean sexually aroused, I mean like uh, aroused, yeah? Um, if I want to get super elevated in energy and, and intensity, like I'm going to do like the hardest workout of my life, right? What should I be doing? And this, now, this is important. Never does this incorporate uh, external substances ever because so many people are so dependent on like, I'm just going to go take this pill or drink this beverage or like, no, could, can you do that? Whatever your choice, but learning to control your own autonomic nervous system, your own system is so powerful, so much more powerful than you even know. Right. I know, I know things like Adderall and certainly caffeine addictions are so prevalent in our society because people have this high level of expectation of like, I got to get so much done. What if you could access those states without any of that, which I, I promise you can. It's, what you know, I, I say this um, often, what breath work is able to elicit in your body will completely blow your mind. What meditation is able to elicit in your body will completely blow your mind if you become well-practiced at it. But guess what? You know when you shouldn't be practicing meditation and breath work? When you're in the eye of the storm. When shit starts going down, is when people go, I need to practice breath work. Guess what? Good luck. Not going to happen. I have children. And when, when my children are having bad a bad day or they're doing something wrong, is that the time to punish them and teach them something? Of course not. Right? It's before. Right? I should be teaching them an intervention before. Like, hey, here's how we act in these situations. And same with us. Yet, we're adults. So we can't control our own emotions, Right? We tell kids they need to control their emotions. It, do- it doesn't work. So learn to control our state, our state of arousal is something that every one of you guys should be thinking about every single morning. And it doesn't take a huge amount of time, right? I usually leave about minimum 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes is like minimum, but ideally closer to four, you know 40 to 60 minutes would be ideal if we have all the time in the world, but minimum 10 to 15 minutes in the morning to simply create your state, right? Does that sound appealing to everybody? Does anybody ever just start like start the day, pick up their phone and kind of get on with the day? We're all guilty of it. I do it sometimes. If, if you don't, you're lying, right? A state will eventually become a trait, right? So if I want to create the perfect state, right, that I want to be in every day, 
I have to practice. Just like riding a bike, just like playing a piano, I need to practice that state and that state will eventually become a trait. So if I say, when I wake up in the morning, who do I want to be? Do I want to be chaotic and distracted and and have squirrel brain and and lack uh, the ability to be um, focused? Or do I want to be calm and focused and intentional? Right? Uh, and, and you can ask use any adjective you want. You decide what you're going to be. Right? Do you want to be the warrior? Do you want to be the monk? Do you want to be able to access all of them? Right? I'm, I'm sure you guys all want to be high achievers. So do you think a high achiever just allows, let's say like a guy like, um, I don't know, like let's, let's pick your favorite sport, right? You think of like UFC or you think of basketball or you think of football, or you think of hockey. You think those athletes who are the best in the world allow the environment around them to determine how they're going to show up. They leave nothing to chance. I'm going to show up in an optimized state and there's nothing around me that can influence that, right? And everyone plug your ears if, if cussing offends you, but it's it's the unfuckwithable m- mindset, right? It's like, no, I'm I'm like, I'm a, I'm, I know who I am, right? And I'm going to show up as me and nothing around me can, can pull me in either direction. Because I'm driving the bus. Well, I want to give you guys some immediate interventions you guys can you guys can apply right now to uh, ultimately gaining control of the autonomic nervous system. Yep. Okay. So I always like to. Some of you guys are sitting in the office. This may this may get weird, so I won't make you do it. But normally, I make you guys do some breath work and some meditation with me, uh, so you could you could start to understand what it looks and feels like, right? So if I and I'll just do it for your sake, so you, but but I would suggest. Be willing to be uncomfortable, right? Be willing to be a little bit vulnerable. Be willing to look a little bit goofy. Because ultimately, guys, no one, no one is is putting you down, right? And if they are, that's their own stuff, right? So be willing to do the, the incredibly unusual things that are going to have the high impact. So the first intervention that you guys probably already know is, the, is breathing, right? Because the reason breathing's become so famous and popular and, and, and such a big phenomenon right now, by the way, breathing is not a fad. It's not going anywhere, Breathe, right? The breathing interventions, it, it's not a fad. It's by far the, the single biggest intervention that we all have access to uh, at, the, you know, at the drop of a, of a hat. It's always right there. So if I want to get stimulated, I want to get more aroused, like I'm having a little lack of three o'clock energy or I'm, I'm dragging butt in the morning and I just don't feel right, what do I want to do? There's a, there's a little bit of nuance here, but the first thing I want to be considerate of is like, okay, where where am I breathing? Biomechanics, like where am I breathing? Am I breathing into my chest or am I breathing into my belly? Right? So mechanics is a really important thing. Like how am I breathing? Am I actually using my diaphragm to breathe? So if any of you feel as though you have a stressed out personality, if anybody self-identifies as having a stressed out personality or someone that's in their head a lot, anybody identifies that, you don't have to raise your hand, but you can. Um, right. If that's you, learning to get out of your chest and into your belly when you breathe will be the single biggest or single most immediate intervention that you can leverage for sure. Breathe through your nose, not through your mouth, and breathe into your diaphragm. Again, so, so simple and effective. Okay. Um, and so this is a skill, right? This is a skill. And if you guys, the simple way to do this is I would suggest laying down on your back. I go at home, at home when you start, lay your back and put, put a book on your stomach and see if you can make the book go up when you inhale and down when you exhale. Up when you inhale, down when you exhale. So if you guys just want to try it, throw one hand on your stomach, put one hand on your chest. Notice how much your chest is moving as compared to how much your belly is moving. 
The chest should not move at all. The belly should move a lot. And if you guys start to get really good at this, you'll notice you actually start to feel it in 360 degrees. So you'll start to feel it go out at your sides, you sort of feel it in your lower back, and even sometimes in your upper back. That's, that's where you want to aspire to. You ever see a dog breathe? They breathe in 360 degrees. So you want to breathe in your belly, your sides, your lower back, your upper back. You should feel it expand in all directions. Then we know we're, we're using our lungs, we're using our diaphragm, all lobes of our lungs, and we're stimulating the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is going to be a really important way to access your energy. Okay? Um, so that's one. Second intervention, I can control the cadence of my breath. So biomechanics, cadence, I can control the breath in, I control the breath out, and the holds on either end, the duration of, of, of my breath, right? So if I want to breathe, uh, if I want to excite myself, I want to breathe in a, in a way that's going to give me more energy and more ability to like train, attack, whatever, whatever is necessary, I increase the rate of breathing. Typically increase the, the sharpness. Right, so you sharp breaths in, your heart rate should jump up. If any of you guys measure your heart uh, in real time, your 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 heart respiration, your um, sorry, heart rate, you'll notice just by doing that, your heart rate should jump up. That's a really responsive nervous system. That's a good thing. And then if I did the opposite, I went. My heart rate should come down. Here's a good example. Um, the the highest state of of readiness, right? Peak state of readiness. I can get my heart rate to go from resting is about 50 to about 90 to 100 in a single breath. Body goes, boom, I'm ready to attack. I'm ready to jump, right? And then a single breath, I'm going to go. And I'm back down at 50. That's the ideal circumstance in responsiveness, right? Now think of how that's useful. Something stressful in life happens, somebody cuts you off in traffic. Do you want your heart rate to stay up there? Or do you want to bring it back down? Right? Yeah. If you wake up in the morning, you're dragging a little bit, you do one breath, all of a sudden your heart rate shoots up, you're at 90. Well, I'm ready to go. I'm ready. To, I'm, 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 there's no such thing as being tired at that point. You're in automatic control of your energy. Right? So we could talk about all these other lifestyle interventions like nutrition and, and, and stress. And again, we're just basically talking about stress and sleep. And all these other things, which are very important. But if you can't control your autonomic nervous system, you are by default going to make bad decisions. Has anyone ever made a bad decision when it comes to nutrition? And, and bad decision is relative, right? But where you're like, man, I probably shouldn't eat that third donut, or I probably shouldn't eat that fourth pizza pizza. Talking talking to myself here. Um, yeah, you're like, oh, I probably shouldn't do this. But you're you're not always in control, right? Whereas if you can learn to control your autonomic nervous system, it allows you to become present, become more mindful, and make those decisions based on the, the prefrontal cortex, right? The prefrontal cortex is the executive center of the brain, rather than the amygdala, which is in the back, which is based on kind of primal responses, right? The amygdala is trying to keep you alive. It's usually reacting from fear, from inadequacy. That's where your, your amygdala is reacting from. It's trying to keep you alive, a survival mechanism. So if you're living out of the reactiveness that is the amygdala, you're always going to fall short on your goals. You're always going to make decisions that are ultimately not guiding in the direction of your dreams and your goals. Okay, So we want to be able to access that. And we can't, literally cannot, access our prefrontal cortex for our position of hyperarousal from stress. 
right? If my cortisol is elevated and my heart rate's going really fast, your prefrontal cortex has just come offline. You're not making conscious decisions, you're not making good decisions. You're always going to react from a safety perspective, from from moving away from fear. So you guys all know that you can make decisions, you know this, but I'll remind you, you can make decisions to move away from fear, or you can make decisions to move toward uh, pain, right? Move away from pain, sorry, move away from pain, move toward pleasure, one or the other. And so moving away from pain is making a decision from my amygdala. My amygdala is like, I'm afraid of something, inadequacy, scarcity, fear. Those are all amygdala-based decisions that are ultimately going to, to not be the most productive. When I'm making decisions for my prefrontal cortex, the executive center, I move toward pleasure, right? The only way I can make decisions from the prefrontal cortex is when I'm in a place of autonomic balance. Thanks for listening to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. For full episode guides with important takeaways and bonus resources, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash learn. If you enjoy the show and find value in the content, please subscribe, share this podcast with at least one person you know and love who would benefit from this content, leave us a review, and support our sponsors. You can see the full list of show sponsors, discounts, and get exclusive Muscle Intelligence deals at muscleintelligence.com slash resources. To join our private community and get VIP access to my master classes, upcoming muscle camps, and other resources that we don't post anywhere else, head to muscleintelligence.com slash community. Most of all, thank you very much for your trust, for your time, and most importantly, for supporting health and fitness in this world. Enjoy your day. I look forward to seeing you here next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.